fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. John Copenhaver. How are you doing? I am doing splendidly, Al. Uh, how Enjoying are you? your vacation? Um, my vacation, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like I have a vacation. I just write all the time and teach occasionally. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I saw some pictures of you. You were like in the sun, weren't you, or something, doing something wild? Uh, maybe earlier this summer, I was in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, at the beach. But recently, um, other than going to the Cure concert, which I was telling you about earlier, which was great. Um, I've been kind of like my head in my new book, so boring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, to, not to me, but probably to the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, you have to get out there and cause some trouble, you know. Yeah, right. How you get things done. Mm-hmm. Spe- uh, you know, speaking of trouble, we've got a guest that's caused some trouble. So <laughs> we, we have to have her in here now and, and talk about why she's causing trouble and what's going on here. You know, how does she get there? So uh, let's welcome Miss Jillian Lauren, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, may I steal that? Speaking of trouble, for the um, title for my next memoir, please, Al. Yeah, you, yeah, do it. Go for <laughs> it. Okay. Go for it. I'll even I'll write a review. Page and I, you know, and I also want to tell you, John, I I completely understand that that there's no such thing as a vacation. I remember there was one, uh, you know, weekend. My husband and I decided. I imagine this was pre kids to go to Vegas, have one night, go see a show, go, and we got to the hotel room, sat down, and he was just like, "Just take out your computer. It's fine." It's really fine. <laughs> you don't have to pretend <laughs> like you actually want a vacation. Um, and I, and I think that that's sort of, um, you know, that's the double edge sword yeah. of what we do. Yeah. You know, like we're, we're yeah. compelled. We're driven. We have a sense of meaning. Um, we're infuriating to the people around us who want to go see a show or the beach. Oh, God, that- Right, I know. It's like I'm sitting at the beach and like like fidgeting. <laughs> yeah, like I'm supposed to enjoy this. Just I like... just had to schlep a whole bunch of chairs and <laughs> make sure my kids don't drown. And I I, I can't write. <laughs> I can't write under these conditions. Um, story. That's how it is. But but so then then why do you do it? Like, uh, what is it about you that is? Um, that that holds your focus so strongly. Um, you know, I I would say through uh, the research I did on this book, which was never meant to be a book, it was meant to be an eight thousand word article for New York Magazine that I thought, you know, it would put a bunch of heat on an underreported serial killer, might be able to expose the fact that he had killed many more people, and. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm a person who's driven by curiosity um, and creativity and uh, and probably a little bit of that OCD. And <laughs> to tell you the truth, it runs in the family. Um, and uh, once something gets a hook in me, gets a hook in my brain and then gets a hook in my heart, and this story really did, that's when it turned into a book and and a true investigation and you know um you know i i believe my growth as an investigative journalist yeah well i think i think you're you, this is this is great but you've done it the right way in the sense that there's a lot of true crime out there because it's kind of exploded in 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 the country um but you're not just like writing secondhand you go in there and you meet and and of course, 
this is uh, documented on uh, the documentary from Stars confronting mm-hmm. the serial killer, and and now now the book. And you've um, you spent time with the killer. You got him to confess. So you're really involved in the story as well. You're not just taking second hand or third hand. You're actually doing the job. Um, that's quite the commitment, but it also, I think it puts you up with the, the great true crime writers myself. It puts, it puts you in that place where when someone reads the book, they're getting the real goods. They're not getting second, third hand information. Absolutely. And uh, that was not the plan, Al. No. <laughs> uh, uh, this was going to be my real moment of traditional reportage. You know, I'm, I'm very well known as a confessional memoirist. Um, you know, uh, in many different subjects. Um, because, you know, many, like I said, I'm driven by curiosity. I'll, you know, follow whatever I find compelling. Um, and I, I've always found crime compelling, but, you know, I, I certainly didn't mean to insert myself in the middle of the story. Part of my intention was to take myself out of the center of the story. As I, as I began working on this project, I was working on a novel, um, which would be my second novel. My first is a, a book called Pretty, which was the first book I wrote. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was, I was craving like that, that trip into fiction again, you know, that trip into my mind again, um, in which I could uh, inhabit other characters. And yes, of course, always sort of telling my story, because what other story do we have on this earth? Um, you know, I have these eyes, I have this brain, um, but, you know, um, you know, to go to those other lands, we go to writing fiction and I wound up in a conversation with Detective Mitzi Roberts, who is a very fancy detective uh, at the mm-hmm. LAPD Robbery Homicide Division. She is who, um, if you're a fan of Michael Connolly and really who isn't, um, mm-hmm. the Renee Ballard character is based on Mitzi. And I can tell you that the real thing uh, is even more stunning. And I did an interview with her uh, that was about police procedure. Um, it was about certain historical crimes that she, as a cold case specialist, knew about. And it wasn't until the very end that I asked her, you know, what's the case you were the most proud of? And she said, I'm proud of them all. But I did catch this serial killer once and that was pretty cool and it was the last watery remains the iced tea of this interview that nobody gets with this i was like (laughs) i screwed this whole thing up and i i just said i buried the lead and she said i'm not the one doing the questions (laughs) (laughs) wow which is very mitzi and she had me and I was like, well, tell me about this. And she explained that there was this serial killer, Samuel Little, who had been convicted in 2014. She was the lead investigating officer on um, on that investigation. You know, there was a very exciting cross-country manhunt to find him when, you know, what happened was DNA technology caught up with him and a Department of Justice grant to the LAPD allowed them to screen cold case evidence and they were able to find three hits, three matching hits on three cold cases, murders uh, of women in the late eighties in South Los Angeles, where women were turning up in dumpsters nearly every morning. We had seven or eight serial killers, active serial killers, in South Los Angeles during that time because it was so both over and under policed. Um, it was a very underserved community and, uh, and a community of invisible women, essentially. Um, and Mitzi told me that uh, she knew that he had killed many more women across the country. He had a rap sheet like no one had seen. Like the district attorney, the deputy district attorney, Beth Silverman, who prosecuted Sam, also prosecuted Chester Turner, Michael Hughes, um, Southside Slayer. Um, 
she, you know, she's the one who like takes down the big sexual serial killers. And even she was like, I have never, I've never seen a rap sheet like this in my life brought tears to my eyes because every single day they had him and every other day he managed to kill someone else. Right. Now this is Sam Little. And so we don't even at this point, even now, do we know how many people he actually killed? Like even before what's confirmed, like maybe in the sixties and, and, Early 70s and then again in the early or... 70s. Yeah, I believe I do have a pretty comprehensive count. Um, you know, and everyone wants to know the number, the number. Um, and I don't know that it will ever be known with exactitude. And I realize I did jump the story a little bit there and, uh, you know, not say that once I realized that there might be all these other victims, um, that was really what got me contacting New York Magazine and saying, you know, I think I can do this thing. Let me, uh, here's my angle. I'm going to talk to the killer. Started writing to him, got myself into that prison and began to do the interviews that elicited the confessions. So not all of these are my confessions. These are the official confessions to the FBI, to local jurisdictions, um, uh, 93 confessions 63 confirmed uh as of now and i actually got to for the first time in a long time i think it's been almost a year that we've had another solve in a case uh, i made a map at the beginning right you know like a traditional map where i put pins in it because it was so hard as the numbers started mounting it was really so hard for me to wrap my head around a what what i had gotten myself into talk about having a talent for trouble you know, inserted myself into the middle of a federal investigation and the body count is mounting. And it's even hard for me to get my mind around, like that every single one of these was a person. So I made this tactile map and I got to change out a pin the other day. You know, the red pins are for the unsolved and the black pins are for the solved. So this really, this really, in a sense, it it's, starts out as something quite a bit more innocent. I guess that's a, a type of word I'll use here, but it sort of starts out with something else in mind and you get drawn into this and now you feel, let's say, an obligation or a need to go further and find out more and even the truth and, and what's going on. And it sort of, I guess in a way, it, it obsessed you in a sense. It took a minute. It didn't start yeah. that way. Right, um, right. you know, it, it started, you're right. I mean, and I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say innocent, you know, like I think a lot of people, you know, portray me and the documentary that Joe Berlinger made about me, you know, documents me a little bit further along in the process of when I really started to become involved in these victims' cases and the victims' lives. But, you know, when I first walked into that men's maximum security prison, it seemed just like a, an adventure, a, a surreal experience. As a writer, you're always looking to see a world you've never seen. I certainly have never seen a visiting room in a men's maximum security prison. I did know a few scumbags that I called who had done time there at California State Prison LA. And I said, like, how do I do this? And they totally gave me the rundown. They're like, okay, you can try to get an appointment. You're not going to get an appointment. Leave your house at 430 in the morning. You're going to start lining up at 6. They let the visitors in at 930. So bring a book. Um, and it's true. The cars line up. And, um, you know, and then you get your number and you go in and you wait. And I, I, I had no idea what I was waiting for. Um, I was so prepared. I really thought I was so prepared. And uh, I do have an ace in the hole that I always have to admit. My aunt is a very famous psychiatrist who has worked at Harvard University for 40 years and is a famous diagnostician. And, uh, you know, I've been, like, begging her to tell me, you know, how to do this, how to talk to a psychopath, what it's going to feel like, what it's going to be like. And uh, I remember her last piece of advice was, don't wear an underwire. You're going to set off the metal detectors. And it was the one thing I forgot. 
you always forget something you know i was like i had you know i had like everything clocked in my mind i had like four different cards in my pocket if i couldn't get him to talk this way i was gonna try to get him to talk this way if i didn't you know and uh and then i was like i forgot underwire in my bra and there are no sharp objects around and so i had to chew it out in the bathroom you know and and the women who were there visiting the inmates were like, you got this girl, chew that out. (laughs) (laughs) And then I I had to bring the underwires to the sheriff's deputies. Right. You know, and I was like, here they are. (laughs) Don't ask me how I got them. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask, don't tell here. Okay. Um, You know, and I walked and, and, it was, I mean, the feeling of that prison is biblical. It, it, it's it's one of the largest prison industrial complexes in the nation. You know, it's tremendously overcrowded. It's in the middle of a desert um, that is either 110 degrees or 40 degrees um, and changes in a second. Uh, and, uh, you know, it really had this feeling of punishment in the middle of the desert and you know i walked into b block Mm. and i expected everything i'd seen in the movies which is what this is how we this is how we process these things this is how we think we understand (laughs) crime or we you know we don't understand it's not edited with a soundtrack with you know and that i thought there'd be a piece of glass and the whole hand thing and the telephone and you know and i walked into a visiting room that was little plastic tables and inmates visiting with their babies and uh, you know and legos in the corner and a photo booth and vending machines which i knew to bring quarters from from those scumbags bless them said don't do not go there without quarters the vending machines (laughs) are not cool um and i just guest and picked a couple things picked some funyuns and little debbie cakes a couple cokes and sat down and was watching the wrong door and that <laughs> man was in a wheelchair and he rolled up behind me and he said you know Ooh, we you are my angel come from heaven to yeah. save me god knew that i was lonely and he sent me you and i almost inside it's like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I was watching their door. I was, <laughs> um, you know, and you'll hear me laugh. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that you'll find very common. I mean, you'll find it common amongst cops. You'll find it common amongst people who, um, you know, I mean, there were times I was spending 18 hours a day with my head in crime scene photos. And my husband was saying, like, like, do not wind up that scene in the movie where you're like passed out at four in the morning and a like spread of crime scene photos on your office floor. And one of our kids walks in exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. He was like, I told you like three months ago, don't do this. Um, but it did, you know, like the farther I got in, the more it compelled me. And also, you know, when I began to see the efficacy of what I was doing and the, results and also i'm a bit of a fighter it's one of the things that i connected about with sam you know he's a he was a middleweight boxer um he was sort of a failed boxer he's a boxer in prison um you know and he was a big man with catcher's mitts for hands uh and i i also am a boxer and i know a lot about the fights um you know, so in our first conversations, you know, I'm saying pound for pound who you think's the best. And he was like, who do you think you are? You know, like little white girl walking in here, <laughs> like pound for pound, who do I think's the best? You know, and his answer, in case you're wondering, was Sugar Ray Robinson, <laughs> you know, and uh, and that's sort of how I, I thought yeah. of it going into a match with him. I was like, what if, you know, okay, so you're a fighter, Sugar Ray Robinson, Mine, Sugar Ray Leonard, like fast, you know, like that, that man is fast and can dance, you know, yeah. and, and you're not going to get a hit in. When I sort of had to start playing those games you play in your mind when you have to keep yourself composed and 
difficult situations, you know, like I'm Leonard, you know, like you can't, you can't touch me. I mean, that's the champ. You can't touch me. That's the (laughs) champ. But, um, Yeah. yeah. Then you whip out the under wires from your bra and say, look at this, bud. I just chewed these out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm too smart. I'm too fast. I'm too pretty. And you yeah, can't right. touch me. Yeah. <gasps> um, but, you know, then walk out to the car. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's and what cry. I do. Yeah. Exactly. There just wasn't, there's not a place no. for it in there. Plus it wouldn't, it wouldn't sit well, right? I mean, you'd be a mess if you, if you lose it while you're there. Um, well, I'd be, I mean, I'd be an unworthy adversary. Right. You and know. At least in his eyes, and then that would be the end of it, in a sense. Right. He'd be bored. Right. He'd be, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, he, he needed he needed a good fight. Yeah. I have to, you know, because I, I did the same thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I met um, the first serial killer I met, mm-hmm. I was kind of in the same boat as you. I was, I went through and I tried to find out things ahead of time and, and it was all the same. It sounds very similar, only he didn't come out in a wheelchair. But the thing is, um, I found him not to be what I expected him to be. Mm-hmm. And that in itself was kind of something that threw me at the beginning because I had all these expectations. Did you feel the same way about, uh, little? Absolutely. Um, I knew um I knew I was getting into the ring with a liar and you know my aunt had told me she's like don't expect him to even be able to tease the lies from the truth necessarily like he may have been telling himself this story about his innocence the whole time he may yet believe it so maybe take some time and that that was actually one of the great gifts of this story um although it it did take a toll on my life is that I had that much time to really observe and sort of, you know, uh, tease apart, you know, some of the really uh, this incomprehensible braid that is, you know, uh, that are these aberrant criminals, these sexual psychopaths, these people who, who kill other people for fun. And for most of us, that's, uh, I mean, I don't know. Al, did it leave you at the end? Did you have like a big answer, a big no. why? Because I, I don't yeah. either. Yeah. I say, I, I, I think I say in my book, you know, like <laughs> here's here's a, here's a Jungian interpretation. Here's a conversation with one of the top neuroscientists in the world doing PET scans on psychopathy. Here, you know, or antisocial personality disorder is is the clinical designation i'm sort of just you know talking in a colloquial way with you guys right now and how we talk about true crime and what i think interests us so much about it is we're just like why and i started to wonder by the end of the interviews if you know the questions just had to be more complex like not only why but you know like how does his his apologism for himself, you know, his greed, his, you know, just essential nature of wanting and taking. He wanted it. He took it. He figured out a justification afterwards. It generally had to do some with something with St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Um, and um, I was like, Jesus is not your apologist. And he was like, well, you think that because you're a sinner. But don't worry, I, I don't hold that against you. And I was like, you actually do. Thank you, you. you, No, I was <laughs> like, no, you do, though. Like, you hold everything against me. And that above all. Um, you know, and I believe that he was talking about my first memoir, which is about, you know, me being the mistress of a prince when I was a teenager. And, you know, the inmates were teasing him i was a hoe you know he's like you're a hoe jill they're telling me you're a hoe and i was like all right then well i'm not a perverted maniacal murdering maniac yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i guess i win this one (laughs) but um i I mean no i really did talk to him that way 
not right not right away no no you have to get that. but eventually we got there um and you know um i found it so similar to the you know interviews i'd read you know to the work you've done and to um you know the experience people have had with serial killers um they have the same sort of references i think they there were some times I'm like, y'all didn't grow up in a world in which no, no other people existed who were serial killers, right? It's not like a zombie movie. All of a yeah. sudden, people are like, what is this thing? There's some disease that's turning people's brains into, what do we do with them? Like, you've never seen a zombie movie? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in your world here, there's no zombie movies? Um you know, but in their world, there are serial killers. And I do believe that they sort of crib from each other. You know, there's sort of references, their apologies, their, um, you know, their insistence on being saved, on being forgiven, um, right. being right, yeah. with the, right with their makers. And, you know, if you're not, that's your problem. If my victim yeah. and if my victims weren't, that's even well, a bigger problem. Yeah, they deserved it then. Do you think that they um, don't even understand why they do it and they're trying to make some sort of, it's an excuse, but it's also meaning for themselves out of it? Is that part of it? Or do you think it's just like pure deception? I think, you know, I asked Sam and he was a very intelligent man, you know, and we broke it down. But, you know, I mean, there were things there were there was head trauma. Mm -hmm. There was sexual abuse. As a young man, there was, you know, long periods of very abusive incarceration, you know, things that will mess up your brain. Um, and perhaps if, you know, all of these genetic and brain structural, like, you know, if that time bomb is already there mm -hmm. and the switch gets flipped, um, I asked him, you know, if any of those things were different, though, do you think that you would have been different? And he said, no. Mm, wow. I said, what if there was a, some 12-year-old boys, like, you know, stealing detective magazines and, and jerking off to necks and thinking about strangulation? And, and, I mean, for him, you know, he was unable to get an erection unless he believed he was killing somebody. Um and, you know, his entire sexuality was about death. And, you know, I said, if there was a 12-year-old boy and, you know, he was, he was stealing these magazines, you know, and he was looking at this imagery and he was having these thoughts, you know, what do you think could be done? I said, nothing. Like, I, I do believe that he thought it, he came baked as he was and that God made him as he was. Hmm. Um, and, and therefore in some ways he was the victim. Why oh, wow. did, why did he have, <laughs> why did he have to be born wanting these things? That's just, that's remarkable. Like I went up, you know, I'm thinking about this whole story. I, I continue to think about two things. One of course is, you know, Sam himself, but also sure. the system right. that allowed Sam to do, I maybe allowed isn't the quite, quite the right word, but um, you know, the, the systemic problems that we're having as a country, whether it's racism or how, you know, we, we work through criminal justice, mm -hmm. like that also seems pretty horrifying. <laughs> well, John, you know, I, I think that that allow is actually the word that I use in yeah. the book. I mean, there's a very famous Bobby Kennedy quote that is every generation gets the criminal it deserves and mm -hmm. the law enforcement mm -hmm. it demands. And, you know, my commentary on that was, you know, I'm not sure that Sam Little was the criminal we deserved. I don't know if I felt comfortable saying that. But, you know, I will say that he was the criminal we allowed. Mm -hmm. um, and it was and there were many systemic problems within the criminal justice system and also, you know, like both federal and local. And, and one of those problems um you know, is still very much 
in contention and um, something that could make great strides in law enforcement um, is, you know, our VICAP system, our Violent Criminal Apprehension System, which is a federal behaviorally based database. So it's not just DNA. It can connect behaviors across jurisdictions across the country, right? When, when otherwise, there, there is no mandated system. Like somebody's killing, you know, then there's this one random killing in Macon, Georgia. There's another random killing in Long Beach. There's a random killing. And until those behavioral patterns and now DNA start to get connected, it becomes very hard to catch serial killers, you know, um, and people who kill strangers. So, you know, traditional gumshoe work doesn't always do the trick um so you know but that's not mandated it's voluntary mm. canada has a very similar system that is that's mandatory and um and it works exceptionally well so a lot of what i started to learn was that you know there was a lack of communication between jurisdictions um that certainly at the time in the 70s and 80s and looking at many of these communities in the south um there were transgender victims uh, it was illegal to be transgender in florida who's going to report a transgender woman who goes missing her friend you know is going to walk down to the police station get herself arrested um and so you know sam worked very much in these shadows in these loopholes and I like to point out that, you know, we got the law enforcement we demanded. I don't feel like we were necessarily, or that all these victims were necessarily like, you know, victims of the cops. Because Sam was, you know, or dismissal by the cops. Although that was certainly part of it, you know, there was a, there was a code that was very popular in Los Angeles in the 80s, and they called in a homicide of, prostitute marginalized women of color found in a dumpster they would say you know there's a homicide uh there's 187 on 55th and central and it's an nhi there are no humans involved or you know Whoa. yeah there's a jumper on van ness it's a no one um and uh so you know there certainly was that you know the idea that there are people that are worth more and people are worth less in society. But I believe that as a society, we create those hierarchies as well. Because, you know, Sam was acquitted by a jury of his peers. Sam was, there was a failure to indict by a grand jury. Sam served 18 months of a four-year sentence uh, f that was pled down from attempted murder to, it was, happened to be a victim who lived. Um, pled down to kidnapping and assault, served 18 months, got out of jail in San Diego, drove to L.A. and killed two women that night. So it was so much like the larger social dismissal of violence against women, and per particularly these women who had, you know, in many people's eyes, just put themselves in harm's way. Why were you on that street at that night? Why did you get in that car? You know, and and why are you a credible eyewitness? Um, as credible and amazing as as some of the eyewitness testimony was, just their character made it discreditable. And um, you know, and that was us. Yeah. You know, that wasn't just the cops. You can't. Right. You know, you can't just you know blame the FBI. We have to all take responsibility for. You know, I, I mean, like. The Bosch TV show, just because I was working with the cop who was, the character was based on, he was really helping me work my way through this investigation. I was lucky enough to work with uh, retired police detective Rick Jackson, you know, said everybody counts or nobody counts. It's, um, you know, it's sort of a, it's a slogan from a fictional character, but um the LAPD has sort of taken it on as their own. And um, it's one that I really held close to my heart as I worked on this. Everybody counts yeah. or nobody counts. And well, everyone's got to be in yeah. on it. Yeah. And it does take time. Yeah. It takes time. You know, I write, because you know, even covering some of the murders from the 60s and stuff, gay mm -hmm. murders, you look at, 
the police clippings and you look at the the reports in the in the newspapers and and the police chief well homosexuals are criminals i'd right. never hire one you know so that's that you can't you can take so that's the mentality of someone in the 60s let's say in a police force and you can't have them be in that job for 20 25 years and all of a sudden the government goes well we've changed the law it's no longer illegal and have them just change their feelings overnight it's, like that's, you know that's a i've big talked problem. to some who have yeah. and i've talked to some who haven't you know yeah. and but i really have talked to some who have who have said you know um you know i talked to some cops in the south who said you know i'm ashamed right. of the way that that we treated the you know the black prostitutes in this town in the early 80s that you really couldn't commit a crime against a black prostitute it wasn't it wasn't considered a crime right it was it was, you know that that person was less of a person to begin with um wasn't where their resources were going to be allocated um you know so i i have had cops been very thoughtful you know and take their comeuppance and also you know fight for cold cases now and um a lot of retired detectives will do you know volunteer work on cold cases too and um so uh, you know i think that the advancing technology gives us you know gives us a chance to make some reparations um but we have to care to do so um, and, and that's what I hope to do with this book. I mean, I, I don't write message books, you know, I'm not on a soapbox. Um, you know, it wasn't, I didn't walk in there politically motivated. I walked in there probably both opportunistically and personally as a victim of domestic violence, probably a little angry, want to take this guy down. <laughs> um, you know, that was definitely in there and grew. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, what I really want to do, you know, I want to entertain people. I'm a writer. Um, and by telling this story that I believe the scope of is it, it, it's not just the gruesomeness of the murders. It's, you know, these women's, the victims' lives are fascinating and I do a deep dive into them. The law enforcement officers are incredible characters. I have a real cowboy in my book. I have a real giant <laughs> six foot three inch cowboy. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. <laughs> I was like, you are six, seven in that hat. You are really wearing that hat. <laughs> I'd never seen the Texas Ranger. <laughs> Someone said to me at a party, they were like, are you having an affair with a baseball player? I was like, I'm going down to see a Texas Ranger. <laughs> said, are you having an affair with a baseball player? I was like, oh, thanks, but no. <laughs> um, no, I'm really actually going to m meet a Texas Ranger. And, uh, um, a real one. Yeah, a real one. And, uh, you know, and, and, and he taught me a great deal as well, Texas Ranger James Holland, you know, and he was, um, you know, a complicated character in my life, and, but certainly spearheaded this effort and a tremendous amount of, of respect for his passion. So, you know, I, I, I did get this incredible, um, you know, like quilt of this country and, and, you know, have been left to grapple with many of my own feelings. Um, and I sort of, you, you caught me on a weird day. Can I tell you why? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what's going on? Um, because I'm having the first sort of little private event for my book. My book comes out on the 18th of, uh, of july of this month 18th of july yeah. uh you can get all kinds of great pre-order incentives right now on my website and i woke up this morning and I, i've been answering a lot of questions that people, people say you know you, you became impassioned about giving these women back their voices like their voices were taken away from them and you have this voice i mean really please you couldn't shut me up <laughs> just try to interrupt me <laughs> Not even you, Al. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, and I sort of woke up this morning and I was like, oh, my gosh. 
it's the other way around. Like, there was always something that just like a little bit tonally hit wrong for me about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm giving these women back their voices. I was like, I don't have the power to do that. I don't even necessarily have the right to do that. I, I would pray to them, like, please, you know, just like, let me give it a shot. I'm the, I'm the best you got. No one else is going to try. Let me give, let me give your voice a shot, you know? And then I woke up this morning and I was just like, they gave me a chance to like express my voice, like express my anger, you know, about the violence that I've seen and, you know, and the weight of this that I've lived with and the voice in Sam's head and the fury, you know, and the years of my life I've spent, you know, as a woman in this world um, and a troublemaker, like you pointed out, we do tend, we do tend to get into trouble. And, uh, and I thought, you know, I mean, the gift has been that this book kind of gave me my voice, not the other way around. So, so how do you think this has changed you, this whole process? Cause I know, I know whenever I do one of these things, it's, 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 it's kind of like how you're describing. It's all over the place. There's all sorts of emotion and feeling and mm-hmm. anger and happiness. And there's all sorts of thoughts that go through the mind and, and the whole t- time that you're doing it, it's up and down like a toilet seat, you know? Mm-hmm. So what, I have three boys in my it, house, so yeah, just, right, well, just so about you know. exactly like that. Yes. <laughs> so, so you know, but but at the end of it, when you're you're looking back now, this is coming out here shortly. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just about done, and it's going to be it's out to the world. It's theirs now. So, but how right. is it for you? How has this changed you? How are you different now compared to when you started this process? I'm more serious person and I I know it doesn't always that doesn't always read um there was a sort of um a flippancy or a glibness that I think that was a defense mechanism for me always you know if you can be clever enough right I'm small I mean I'm not that small but I couldn't give you a fight and so you know my mouth has always been my, my my greatest weapon and um I just started to put my head down into the research and take myself seriously as a journalist and take myself seriously in courtrooms and realize that, you know, like there are, there are just some things that like this armor that I built are not going to protect me from. And they're certainly not helping anyone else. You know, they're certainly not helping any of these women. They're certainly not helping, you know, like that kind of steeliness is not helping me tell this story in a vulnerable way. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to drop it. Not all the time. It's still, it's still there. It's hanging. <laughs> it's hanging by the door. I'll put it on before I leave. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it made me a more serious writer and a serious journalist and a serious person. And I don't think that that's necessarily made me a whole lot more fun. You know, Scott's like, way to bring down a room. If anyone can bring down a room, it's you. Can we not do the murder tonight? And, um, you know, and, and I also hope that just like it raised the level of my writing, um, you know, every project does. You think it's supposed to get easier? I, like, I think, you know, this is my fifth book. First one's still in a drawer. You know, the, my very first attempt. Um so it's the fifth book I've written, fourth book I've published, you know, uh, two New York Times bestsellers. Isn't it supposed to get easier? And oh, I find yeah. that each book gets harder. No. <laughs> uh, you know, the, harder. you know, sort of the, the bar raises. And um, also, you know, I'm kind of kind of sucked in now. I, when I started, I was like, this is, I'm not writing about serial killers the rest of my life. You know, I'm not looking for an entire career in true crime. And then... You know, it, it turns out I do sort of have a, I do sort of have a way about me and uh, a, a talent for it. Um, and one of the victim's sisters who I'm, I'm very close to and actually works in the military, I, you know, at one point I had an honest conversation with her and I said, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that I was able to, you know, be able to provide some closure for your family. I, I don't know that I can keep doing this work. And she said, I, I don't know that you get to choose. <laughs> <laughs> like the work kind of chooses you. So I, I do think that at the end of this project, you know, the work has chosen me and I'm going to continue with it. Right. 
What, what, so what do you, what's the biggest point you want people to, to take away from the book? There's the entertainment and there's, of course, all the, the things that went on in the case and the, the knowledge that they'll learn and from your interviews and stuff. But at the end of the day, is there something you want a reader to be aware of now after reading this book? As you said, you know, you walked away from a conversation with your first serial killer with all your assumptions challenged. Um, I'd like to do the same. I'd like to challenge people's assumptions, you know, and, and not just about these monsters who fascinate us for good reason. Um, monsters are fascinating. Monsters are frightening. I want them to go away with, with questions about, you know, humanism and, and questions about themselves, or, you know, how we compartmentalize, how we judge people, um, how we allot worth in this life to a human being. Um, and I would love to invite them and all these amazing web sleuth communities um, who are, are so committed and brilliant, um, you know, and, and dive through the Charlie Project, the Doe Project, and NamUs, and really, like, are, are, I think, a great resource for this country. I, I want to invite everyone in, um, not just in the search for Sam Little's victims, although, you know, that has become my, my specialty right now, um, closing that gap between the confession number and the number of clearances. You know, I, I'll still be working on that. Um, but just to look at the look at the challenges we're facing, you know, with our law enforcement, with um, our system of communication and with how we look at each other as people. Are you on social media? Do you have like a uh, website and do you, you tip talk dancing and all that stuff? Like where, how, where do people find? <laughs> you will not find me dancing. Uh, I do get maced. I, I do do some self-defense. Um, so you can find me on TikTok, Jillian Lauren Author. And that is where I'm doing a lot of missing persons. Um, I'm, you know, talking about a true crime. I do uh, book reviews that people really enjoy. Um, sometimes even, you know, movie reviews. I do some self-defense, um, you know, just basics of self-defense. Um and uh but for the most part um you know i'm i'm talking about cold case victims and cold, unsolved cold cases and um inviting people into that conversation with me and talking about what you know it was it was like to have this long term you know friendship relationship dialogue with a serial killer and people are interested in that and um so tiktok my Instagram um, is Jillian Lauren. Um, I think I, I I quit and rejoined <laughs> Twitter every other day. Yeah. <laughs> but it's Jillian, it's Jillian Lauren. <laughs> My assistant was like, I think you just lost like all 19,000 of your followers. I was like, I don't care. I'm so pissed at Elon Musk right now. I don't even care. <laughs> Um, but I think I'm there actually, Lauren, now, um, you know, Facebook, whatever. But my TikTok, I'm very excited about. I'm putting a lot of, a lot of work into the missing persons work there. Um, and, and my Instagram as well. Well, fantastic. Not only will I follow you on all those, but, um, yeah. Oh, and check out, like I said, we have these incredible pre-order incentives on my website right now, JillianLauren.com. Fantastic. We're going to put all that up on the website so people can find it and, and get out there and, and, uh, great book and, uh, and, uh, see what you're doing on TikTok. But with, with all, everything, how was the pandemic and trying to finish this book during the pandemic for you? Did it have a big effect? It was, I mean, I, it, it had the effect that it had in all our lives. I think, I mean, depending on, you know, how much of your life was like spent out in the world. I mean, so much of my research was on foot, frankly, like really walking around, talking to people. And all of a sudden I was, I was in my home setting up a homeschool at four in the morning, you know, and, and trying to finish this book. I'm under contract. I can no longer visit Sam. I'm talking to him on the phone. Um, all the cops I know who, 
you know, all the detectives that I know are in uniform um, and in the streets, you know, there are protests and, um, and I was in the middle of shooting a documentary. So Joe and the documentary crew were meant to travel to all these other places in the country and um, wound up setting up camp in my driveway. We had a, like a COVID truck in the driveway and had to finish the documentary in my house, you know, yeah. which I'm actually the one thing that I always makes me really, really happy about. Well, there are many things that make me happy about the last, the last episode, episode five of confronting a serial killer. I'm very proud of it's the cameras happened to be there when I solved a murder. Oh, what are the chances? Um, so they really caught that moment when I got the call um, and people are like, if they made, you made it up, right? Like you, you did it again. Or I was like, no, that was actually me getting <laughs> wow. that call. That was like, are you sitting down? You know, that, that case is still open. The name is Alice Denise Duval. It matches all your details. You know, congratulations, kiddo. You just solved a murder. And I was like, wow. uh, you know, just like the shock, the tears, the, you know, the, so the camera's there and, um, you know, my, my two little dogs who have since died, they were very old, had a beautiful glamour shot in episode five. <laughs> so I think at least Calvin and Peanut had their moment in the sun. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so there's that. And um, then just JillianLearn.com. You can find it all there. Fantastic. Well, we appreciate you being on the show, talking about your, your life as the serial kill, killer hunter. Whisper, uh, whisper, slayer, hunter. <laughs> I don't know. There are a lot of words they use. I sort of think of myself as a humanist above all, uh, possibly a bit of a, possibly a bit of a hustler. I was raised, I was raised yeah. by a gambler. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Sets it all. Yeah. So now the book, Behold the Monster, yes. confronting America's most prolific serial killer and um we appreciate you being here the author is jillian lauren and thank you thank you so much for having me thanks you've been listening to the house of mystery radio show to find out more about our guests hosts or shows go to www.houseofmystery.com show is over for now was it as good for you as it was for me This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.